This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Hello, and thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. I want to start things out today with a quote. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. You may have recognized these words from the late, great Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It has been nearly 60 years since Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, and yet black people across America are still being judged by the way they look, by the color of their skin. By definition today, racial profiling is the use of race and ethnicity as grounds for suspecting someone of having committed an offense. It happens in communities across the country, at grocery stores, malls, restaurants, pools, parks, and those are just a few of the many places people are targeted for being simply themselves. In some instances, race has even been weaponized in an effort to have black people and other people of color arrested. We've seen it time and time again with white people calling the police on black people doing everyday activities. Back in May, the nation was stunned by a video showing a white woman who called the police on a black man in New York's Central Park. Here's a quick recap. Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper got into an argument because her dog was not on a lease. Things escalated when Amy called the police and said, I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. That statement suggests that she knew the grave implications Christian would have faced if the police went out there. Since then, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has introduced the Amy Cooper Bill to state lawmakers. The proposed law would make it a crime for anyone to call 911 and make false accusations based on race, gender, or religion. Similar bills have been gaining support around the country. Today, I have with me Renee Hutchins. She is the Distinguished Dean and Joseph Raw Jr. Chair of Public Interest Law at the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law. She has co-authored three books and has written on the law of racial profiling and stop and frisk. Most recently, as a contributing author to the anthology Police the Black Man, Policing the Black Man, Arrests, Prosecutions, and Imprisonment. Uh, let me say uh, something else about uh, Dean Hutchins. I, of course, uh, met her. I've worked with her in the uh, state of Maryland. She sat uh, on the uh, Appellate Nominating Commission, 
and she was a distinguished professor for so many years at the University of Maryland uh, School of Law. Uh, I uh, have been impressed with her writings, her uh, reasonableness in terms of uh, commissions that she sat on, and she's just a well and highly regarded person uh, in both uh, the District of Columbia and in Maryland. And so, uh, Dean Hutchins, uh, welcome for having come and appeared on Perspectives on Justice. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, let's start uh, by talking about the origins, the origins of racial profiling and how it presents itself. And uh, maybe there are some factors that contribute to racial profiling that you'd want to uh, talk about. Well, so I think to think about uh, uh, racial profiling and, and how we might best govern it, it, it's really important to take it back to the beginning in the Supreme Court um, and the Fourth Amendment and the recognition that what the court has told us is that there is nothing unconstitutional about racial profiling. Um, so what the court has said is that, we, well, at least under the Fourth Amendment, and so what the court has said is that any concerns about the infusion of race into decision-making by police officers, those concerns have to be dealt with under the Equal Protection Clause. But those concerns do not make searches and seizures unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment. Um, and, 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 and that makes for a complicated enforcement of the law, um, because I think what, what most legal commentators and what most lawyers in the criminal justice space will tell you is that the Fourth Amendment is the primary um, method uh, or the most common method for regulating police behavior, that, that bringing equal protection challenges require a level of resources and a level of investment um, that, that frequently is not existent. And so the, the Fourth Amendment, excluding out from the Fourth Amendment considerations of race as the, as the court has done, um, hampers our ability to squarely address the concern of racial profiling. And it is a very, very, very serious concern. Yeah, you uh, mentioned the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm wondering, are you talking about that uh, Wren versus United States oh, case? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I happen to teach criminal procedure to a number of my uh, students, so that uh, certainly uh, that case comes up. Uh, Let's uh, talk for a second about the impact of, uh, of racial uh, profiling. Uh, does it lead to uh, seizures, uh, unjust arrests, uh, incarceration, or what have you? You want to talk about that for a second? So yes to all of the above. Um, so just by way of an example, let's take a look at New York. Um, in New York, the uh, New York City Police Department engaged in, in a practice of stop and frisk that resulted in um, something like 700,000 New Yorkers uh, being stopped in a single year. And the overwhelming majority of those people uh, were black and brown. 
Um, even more troubling, the overwhelming majority of those people were ultimately released. They had committed no offense. They uh, were wrongly suspected of having engaged in any criminal conduct. But their lives were interrupted. They were, they were targeted and told by the public servants who are supposed to protect all of us that they were seen as, as dangers to the community and were seen as suspicious by virtue of their existence. Um, and and so the, the problem of racial profiling is multiple. One, it brings into contact um, communities of color with armed law enforcement agents far more frequently than would be appropriate based upon their uh, representation in the population. And if it were not the case that those interactions um, could quickly escalate into something very, very, very dangerous, we might perhaps be less concerned with what is seen as the inconvenience of being stopped. But the reality is that those stops too quickly turn violent. We've seen that happen um, um, time after time after time, that these these what start off as, as innocuous stops or, or, or um, you know, not particularly um, um, concerning stops very quickly elevate up into a police use of force, resulting in um, um, the deaths of, of black and brown people at, at, at alarming rates. Um, and so the, the fact that police are engaging in conduct that is bringing them into contact with black and brown citizens so frequently is particularly alarming um, because of the way it can, it can escalate so quickly. And of course, this escalation, uh, as uh, you probably can imagine, uh, turns into excessive force claims, and uh, even uh, death uh, in certain instances. So uh, certainly that's a concern to all of us. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I, I, I say this whenever I speak on this topic, I, I, I say this all the time. It, it is a concern that for me is not purely academic. I am, I am the mother of, of two black boys who, who are quickly becoming um, black young men. And it is an alarming thought to, to think that an interaction between my sons and the police um, that might start off as, as, as something seemingly innocuous could very, very, very quickly escalate into my children not coming home. And that is a fear that I think far too many black parents and brown parents carry with them because of the issue of racial profiling. Uh, Dean, uh, you talk about New York. You gave a great example of what happens in New York with those unfortunate uh, contacts. Uh, what's your impression about the uh, district attorneys and prosecutors in, in terms of uh, their uh, reaction to some of these uh, stops and, and seizures that clearly were unconstitutional in the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's it's... It is complicated. It is, it is challenging to ask the prosecutors who work hand in glove uh, with the police every day on any number of cases. It is, it is challenging to ask them to police the very people who are their partners in 90% in of their cases. Um, 
And, and so it, it is both the question of will and the question of, of disbelief, right? So, so even if prosecutors were willing to um, aggressively engage police officers when they were accused of stepping across a constitutional line, even if they were willing to take that jump, you then get to the prosecutors enjoy a profound amount of discretion. Uh, with regard to what cases they will bring. And so in the absence of video, you have the word of a police officer against the word of the aggrieved citizen, um, assuming the citizen lives. Um, and it is, it is challenging to ask prosecutors to, to disbelieve the very police officers who they so frequently have to believe to make their other cases. Um, so, you know, there have been a lot of, of reforms proposed in this regard um, that I think we probably need to, to consider um, more closely if we want to, uh, if we want to tackle um, this issue. I think that a lot of people thought that body cameras and, and video we're going to um, solve the problem because if we could, if we could just capture uh, what happened, that that perhaps we uh, would be able to address the problem objectively. I think a part of the problem that we have seen, though, is that our experiences and our particular place in the world informs what we see on those videos, and so we don't all see the same thing when we watch them. Um, you talked about the reforms. That's certainly uh, important. And uh, I, I heard you with reference to the, the difficult situation of district attorneys and state's attorneys and others who uh, work with the police. Uh, I happen to have been an elected prosecutor myself, so I uh, got into a lot of difficulty across the years uh, with law enforcement and some of the decisions that I had uh, questioned. But in terms of reform, uh, who should uh, be responsible for fixing this? Is this uh, the state legislators? Should Congress do something? What can they do and what role would they have in addressing this? So I, I think it's um, all of the above. <laughs> um, and I think it's the courts too. Uh, so I, I think that we have got to come to a place where um, we are honest about the ways in which the police officers in the field are not adhering to guidance that has already been laid down by the court and hold them to account when they do that. I think that's what we saw in New York. So in the stop and frisk case that was brought, um, most of those stops did not comply with the existing guidance. So just by way of very brief background, um, in America, <laughs> the police cannot stop you because they feel like it. The police have to have some level of suspicion in order to stop you. And the level of suspicion that they have is, as you well know, Judge, the level of suspicion that they have dictates 
um, uh, both the duration and the scope of their engagement with you. And so if they have reasonable suspicion, they can engage in a brief investigatory stop. If they have probable cause, they can engage a full-blown forcible arrest. I think what we found in New York was that the police officers were stopping people with no suspicion or with less than reasonable articulable suspicion. And so in many of those cases, the police were not even complying with the existing constitutional guidance. So that is, that is one way in which we can, we can fix it. The courts can actually hold police officers to account um, under the existing law. But more also needs to be done. And so I think uh, beyond the existing law, right, the Constitution just sets the floor for behavior. It doesn't set the ceiling. And so both Congress and state legislatures are able to exceed the minimal protections that are afforded by the Constitution and could do things like mandate body cameras, could mandate um, uh, review periods or review boards outside of the existing system could, um, there are any number of reform measures that could be taken by state legislatures and by Congress to ensure that, um, that these sorts of claims can be fairly and thoroughly litigated. And I, you know, I started off by saying that the Supreme Court has decided that um, racial justice claims cannot be brought within the Fourth Amendment, that those claims instead sit inside of, uh, of, of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, but the, the burdens that have been imposed upon bringing a case under the Equal Protection Clause are substantial. And so certainly Congress and state legislatures could create a cause of action that would address this issue that sat outside of those extremely high hurdles. They haven't done that yet. Yeah, let's uh, take a look at that. Uh, maybe you have some thoughts on how a, a statute uh, would look uh, if it were to address that. And of course, you, you also just hinted that there are state constitutions and declarations of rights in all the states, and they don't necessarily, as you know, have to be abide by the federal constitution. So uh, what would a uh, bill, what would a uh, statute uh, typically look like uh, if they were to address this issue? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> so um, one might imagine um, a statute that did things like unwind in some respects, not entirely, but in some respects, some of the protections that are afforded police officers when they are defendants, that are protections they're not enjoyed by any other defendants. So, for example, one could imagine um, removing uh, the right of police officers to remain silent um, uh, for extended periods in terms of internal investigations um, after, after uh, a use of force claim has been brought. Um, one could imagine revising the grand jury model so that uh, a presentation of all the evidence. Um, um, you know, I, I, with regard to the grand jury, I, before I finish that thought, I just actually wanted to say one thing. 
After Ferguson, a lot of people criticized the grand jury process in Ferguson after Michael Brown was shot and criticized the, the no bill that came out of that process. And I was talking with some uh, colleagues of mine um, um, who are in the defense bar, and the interesting thing they said was, it is not that the protections that were afforded the police officer in that case were unfair. It's that every defendant who goes in front of a grand jury should have those same protections. And so, you know, we might think about ways in which we could reform the grand jury process. We might think about ways we could reform the investigation process. We could think about ways in which we could mandate um, more accurate uh, fact-based um, uh, um, generation on the streets in terms of, of officers wearing body cameras. One of the things I noticed, I had a case recently, um, and one of the issues in the case was body cam video. And one of the things that I noticed is that the placement of the body cameras on police officers in this particular case, and I suspect in other cases, makes it very difficult to assess the where the police officer is looking at the time that certain actions are being taken. And that one easy way to fix that might instead be to mandate that body cameras are not worn center chest, but are instead worn in alignment with the police officer's eyes so that you could more accurately determine where an officer is looking at particular times um, so that the, the body cam video would capture their viewpoint more accurately because that actually became an issue in the case. Um, so there are any number of reforms that I could imagine, right? It literally is soup to nuts in terms of the reforms that might be imposed in small ways and big ways. And I don't think that we should let the perfect be the enemy of the possible. All right, our, our listeners certainly know that uh, the dean not only uh, teaches uh, uh, law students and runs uh, law school, but she also takes cases. <laughs> I uh, uh, followed uh, her uh, Fourth Amendment argument before the uh, Maryland High Court the other day uh, on the uh, Maryland Transit uh, Authority and the police officers who came up to make investigative uh, Terry stops. So that. Uh, was well, interesting. We'll see how the uh, court uh, rules in that. Uh, we will but. see. We will see. It's an interesting <laughs> case, and it's yes. a case that impacts um, a lot of Marylanders. Sure. Uh, we're uh, going to continue on for a couple more minutes. I uh, want to talk about the uh, police community relationships. Uh, I've heard people uh, talk about uh, trust and restoring trust, and, and I guess the first question, uh, did they ever have trust, uh, police and community, but what can we do to restore the confidence and trust that citizens have with uh, law enforcement and police in, in this area? I, you know, I'm, I, I do not mean to sound glib, um, but my, my first response would be stop shooting us, um, stop killing us. Uh, that, that, that would go a long way toward restoring trust, that when you watch, when you watch the videos of, of a George Floyd, right, the, the, the very clear um, disregard for black and brown life that is apparent in that video plays out again and again and again in video after video after video. 
and um, that disregard for our lives sends a very clear message that I think uh, frequently gets echoed back in community relations with the police. So, so at, at base, stop killing us. <laughs> After that, start respecting our rights. Um, you cannot break the law when you are upholding the law. Uh, Dean, what can uh, ordinary citizens do when they are a victim of uh, racial profiling? Uh, they may be sitting, minding their own business. They may be uh, driving. They may be walking. Uh, we had a couple guys in uh, Philadelphia who were just drinking coffee. Uh, what what should the reaction be of, of victims and citizens when they are confronted with this uh, improper stopping and confrontation? Um, so I'm going to give my mama answer, and then I'm going to give my lawyer answer. <laughs> so my mama answer is come home alive. Right? My mama answer is uh, do whatever you need to do in the moment to comply. The number one indicator of whether you are going home or you are going to the police station, um, and, and unfortunately these days, whether you are, are going to be killed is whether the officer feels disrespected. So I would say first and foremost, make sure you are safe. Um, after that, I would say uh, you want to make sure that you are aware of, of what your rights are and that you are articulating out your rights in a way that is calm, that is clear, that is respectful, but that is firm. And so you, you, the police officers, if they have the right to stop you, if they have the right to forcibly engage you, do not need to ask your permission to do that. And so you can ask an officer clearly and repeatedly, am I free to walk away, right? Now, they may not answer that question head on. Do you, is there some reason why you want to walk away? Is it right? Get a clear answer to that very clear question. Am I free to walk away? If the answer to that question is yes, walk away calmly. <laughs> If the answer to that question is no, or if they lead you to believe that you are forcibly engaged, then you have a, the playing field is very, very different, right? Once the case moves out of on the street and into the courts. Um, so I think you wanna get in the first instance a clear, calm answer to the question of whether you're being forcibly detained. Know that uh, constitutes an encounter or versus exactly. a stop that uh, exactly. we teach in uh, uh, students. Uh, the last question, uh, quickly: uh, Do you have any suggestions that you would share with our listeners as to what they can do uh, to take a step in uh, correcting and addressing this issue? Vote, absolutely vote. So up and down the ticket vote. Lots of people vote at the top of the ticket and they don't vote anywhere else. There are a number of elected prosecutors, number of elected heads of law enforcement offices. Um, if, if, if we vote in numbers and we make our voices heard, they will become more responsive to our needs. So we have to vote. Dean Hutchins, thank you so much for taking your time and coming and joining me on Perspectives on Justice. So, your conversation has been uh, delightful and profound as always. So thank, uh, you, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Before I introduce our next guest, I want to take a moment to give you some did you know facts about racial profiling. We've been talking about how racial profiling presents itself in various communities. 
But let's dive into some specifics our listeners may not know about. First question, is racial profiling constitutional? This may come as a surprise, but yes, it is. Racial profiling in policing does not violate the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The Fourth Amendment provides guidance on search and seizure practices. Let's take racial profiling during traffic stops, for example. Under the Fourth Amendment, using a traffic stop as a pretext to investigate other crimes that police don't have any evidence for, well, that is constitutional. Question number two, does racial profiling help police catch more criminals? Not necessarily is the answer. According to statistical studies in Maryland and New Jersey during the 1990s, in areas where police use racial targeting in their stops and searches, police found drugs, found guns, or made arrests more often than when they stopped and searched white people than when they searched black people or Latinos. And to round this segment out, here are a few rapid facts. One, people who are black and or poor are more likely to be arrested and to be arrested repeatedly. Number two, according to research comparing data from 1999 to 2015, women make up a growing share of arrests and report much more use of force than they did 20 years ago, with black women most likely to be targeted. Lastly, nearly one million people in the United States experience the threat or use of force by police each year, and they are disproportionately black and Latino. These facts, of course, are disturbing, but these are the type of conversations we need to have to discuss aspects of our society and our justice system that needs to change. As we continue our discussion on racial profiling, I am joined by uh, attorney uh, Jay Wendell Gordon, a highly respected criminal trial attorney who represents individuals and small businesses in litigation matters throughout the state of Maryland and also in DC federal courts. Want to say a little more about uh, Attorney uh, Gordon? Uh, he graduated from uh, Woodson High School in Northeast Washington, and of course, he has his own podcast that he looks at from time to time. He is a role model. Uh, uh, he is a uh, tremendous uh, litigator, and I, whenever I see him, I call him the warrior lawyer. <laughs> uh, which uh, he goes by in uh, this part of uh, the country. So, uh, Attorney uh, Gordon uh, Wendell, uh, welcome to Perspectives on Justice. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, uh, uh, Wendell, we, we just had a great conversation with uh, Dean uh, Renee Hutchins of the uh, law school at the uh, District of Columbia. And so, uh, continuing with that vein, let me ask you as a trial attorney, if you can uh, give us uh, your perspective on how racial profiling impacts uh, black and brown people in this country. Oh, man. Um, my perspective is the same as everybody else's for the most part. Uh, it greatly impacts us because uh, 
it affects our psyche. It affects us emotionally. Um, in almost every way imaginable, there's an effect. Our self-esteem, our rightful place in this world, and um, and it's it's one of those things that uh, leaves a lasting impression. I often say that, you know, in certain cases, you may have broken bones, you may have soft tissue injuries. Those things tend to heal. Emotional scars are the types of injuries that you cannot see, but they, they're very uh, long-lasting, and they're very uh, detrimental to, to the spirit of a human being. And one, when one has experienced racial profiling from 8 to 80, uh, such that, you know, maybe guns have been drawn, maybe it's just a disrespect, maybe you placed in, you're placed in handcuffs, whatever that may be. If you're not accustomed to that, if you're not used to that, uh, those things will leave an indelible impression upon you that will last perhaps a lifetime. And you find yourself, even as a 50-year-old man, uh, recounting that incident to your younger uh, generation and t talking and explaining how you felt about it and how those feelings never go away. You may not remember what people do, but you always remember how they made you feel. And when an officer abuses his authority based upon race, uh, those things cut deep. That's, uh, that's a good point. Uh, let, let's uh, take off on that. Uh, police are typically accused of racial profiling and there seems to be a domino effect uh, when this occurs, such as uh, uh, stopping a person of color, arresting them, and perhaps excessive force, and then ultimately, uh, oftentimes, you have a loss of life. So uh, is this something that frequently occurs as an impact of uh, racial uh, uh, profiling? Yes. Uh, w when you have these situations, and I must say that Racial profiling and the victims of racial profiling, that's one of the most underreported violations uh, that you can possibly think because those who are afflicted by it have seen it so many times in their lifetimes through the, through the lenses of others who've experienced it that they will just brush it off as a bad experience, although it affects them. Uh, they won't report it either because they don't know how to report it or they're, they are afraid that if criminal charges ensued, uh, they're afraid that it would impact their ability to um, have a satisfactory outcome to their charges because this is, we're talking about a system. Uh, the criminal justice system is, is more like an organism uh, with all these individual parts involved to move this organism. And uh, when you are dealing with an organism that is a living system, when everybody's working together, at least so it seems, uh, to, to, um, to attack you, for lack of a better word, to, to, to prosecute you in some instances and persecute you in instances when you've done absolutely nothing wrong, because that's what it feels like. Um, those types of situations, um, they don't bode well for individuals. They just don't. Uh, Attorney Gord, let me ask you uh, this. Uh, what, what type of behavior uh, tends to draw police or cause police to stop or make an investigative uh, uh, Fourth Amendment stop? Or uh, stated a different way, what types of crimes 
do you see black and brown people being accused of the most because of racial or profiling? And I, and I know you, uh, you, you do a <laughs> I mean, lot that of runs that, a gamut yeah. because yeah, uh, sure. uh, a lot of it, there's no crime committed at all. You know what I mean? And so you have a situation where someone's walking while black, driving while black, bird watching while black. Um, you name it, you run the gamut, and, and you will find it because not only do you experience racial profiling from law enforcement officials, but you also experience it from the greater community. This is just some, I'm not going to call them the daily trifles of being black in America, but it is some of the, um, some of the concerns and cautions that we meet, must be mindful of and must learn how to make adjustments uh, to the extent that we're not allowing our personal constitutions to be violated. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of uh, talk about uh, particularly uh, white people calling the police on uh, mm -hmm. black people, as you said, and they really haven't done anything at all. Uh, what do you make of that? The lack of accountability, the, the lack of tolerance for the black experience, the lack of accountability for those who violate black Americans, and uh, it seems almost like there's a bloodlust for black suffering. Uh, that people, um, I call it trauma porn, and it probably starts over the internet where you see black suffering, uh, George Floyd, uh, uh, individuals who are being beaten by police. You see these videos, or killed by police, you see these videos constantly running over and over again, almost to anesthetize its audience, uh, but it's greatly affecting us mentally. It's causing mental trauma upon us, but you don't see when a, when a white person is killed by police, you don't see those videos over and over again. And in fact, you'll hear a message that they want to respect the, the families by not uh, playing this video over and over again because it re-traumatizes the family. You don't see that sensitivity. So it's a lack of sensitivity. It's a lack of tolerance because our margin of error is far less. They tolerate our mistakes far less uh, than they tolerate those of others and in uh, the lack of accountability. And that's what I make of it. And we need to work with our um, legislators uh, to help them put in place laws that will um, combat uh, the Amy Coopers of the world who, who make false reports and, and those who, who call police on individuals simply because they're black. Yeah, we, uh, we certainly need to talk about uh, how we solve it. And you mm -hmm. mentioned uh, uh, legislative uh, assistance and, uh, of course, uh, uh, the courts uh, should uh, certainly have a role. Now, uh, Attorney Gordon, I know you represent uh, a number of individuals who've been stopped, uh, who've been uh, falsely uh, arrested, and I know that you do uh, both civil and criminal cases in this respect. Uh, what uh, reaction are you getting from, from courts uh, as to uh, accusations being made of racial profiling? Racial profiling is a tough one. Um, courts are insensitive uh, to it because, and partially because of the law. The law uh, doesn't give way to bringing a racial profiling case easily. Uh, we in court, in criminal court, for instance, when you know that a person's been stopped despite what the officer's pretext is, 
uh, a person's been stopped because of his race, you can just look at all the factual variables and determine, yeah, this was a racially motivated stop because, um, you know, that's, that's how it's shaped up. But if an officer can come up with uh, a basis that is, however incredulous, uh, if he can just speak those words, those words are accepted as the gospel and everything else that factors into the obvious that this was a racially uh, motivated stop goes out of the window and there goes uh, any relief that you may have in any other tribunal to try to try to aggrieve what happened to you. So the judges, the judges play a great role in the perpetuation of, 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 of racial profiling uh, because they, they are the mainstay. They, they determine who gets through the gate. And uh, so, it, again, it requires a sensitivity uh, uh, to the experience. And those who are familiar with the experience, uh, we would hope that they would, uh, would, would exercise uh, some, a little more judicial um, consideration to those experiences. And I, some yeah, do. I think you said the word sensitivity. Yeah, <laughs> sensitivity. Yeah, sure, sure. I was trying to find the right word, but um, th that, that to me is a major issue. And Maryland is, to me, the, one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest don't do that's. Maryland incarcerates more African-American men than Mississippi, than, than Georgia, than South Carolina. And I remember reading about this in the newspaper, and I was floored because I love my Maryland. I love my Maryland. I call this the great state of Maryland. But when I hear these staggering statistics, you know, it, it bothers me to no end because Maryland is not full of white judges. Maryland has a large, a, a decent quantity of black judges, especially in those jurisdictions that have black constituents. Yet, our African-American men are filling these, these jails over states like, as I said, Mississippi. That's not all white judges. Black judges participate in that, too. And I think that there needs to be uh, some additional sensitivity, as you've, as you've stated, uh, to that fact. And we need to write the course in Maryland. Maryland should not hold that dubious distinction. And I'm ashamed of Maryland, but I'm willing to work with Maryland uh, to write the course. Uh, okay, so what, what do you uh, say to uh, persons who have been victim uh, or victimized by racial profiling? What type of reaction should they uh, make uh, when law enforcement uh, uh, comes up, stops them, picks them out, selectively enforce the law, whatever? What, what, what do you tell your clients uh, in terms of uh, their reaction and behavior okay. if they're a victim? Right. So we have more victims than we do cases, uh, cases that, you know, someone like me, I would take. We have victims almost, I don't know, four, five, six out of ten times. But every case does not arise to an actionable offense. But when you have a case in a situation that does not arise to that level, you can file a complaint against that officer. And I would encourage your listening public to write. Just file a complaint and carry it through because if nothing else, that complaint will go into that officer's personnel file. And if enough of them build, it would trigger something in that department to, to flag that officer. 
And if you have a situation that later occurs, even with somebody else, with the same officer doing the same things where someone's actually hurt or injured, then you have something that you can rest upon to say, okay, this guy was a problem, he's been a problem, nothing could be done to, 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 to correct his behavior or there was nothing done to correct this behavior when something actually could have been done. So I think documentation, we need to know who these repeat offenders are. We need to know who these, who these officers are uh, who trammel upon the rights of our citizens so we can do whatever it takes to get them uh, out of our jurisdictions and, and not allow them to, to police us and harm us. And that's, that's what I think. That's one of the main things you can do. You say it a lot. Uh, you talked about what judges can do and uh, what citizens can do. Uh, what about uh, legislators? Uh, oh, anything legislators. That, yeah, they can do? You know, legislators are really the linchpin of this whole thing because, <laughs> can I talk about Maryland? <laughs> Let me just lay down the statistic, the, 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 the lay of the land. Maryland is 30% African-American. 51, 52% of the Democratic Party. This is a Democratic state. Shouldn't nothing move in this state without African-American approval all across the board. We should be picking governors. We should be picking any elected official that runs our government. But we've always um, ceded our power uh, to, you know, back... In the time, it was Michael Mil Mike Miller uh, or some other folks. And we never harnessed our power that we actually have. Maryland should be Wakanda. <laughs> and I know your, your audience might go crazy. And if not Wakanda, it should be a, a place of equality. But Maryland carries a lot of dubious distinctions because our legislators were, before this year, ashamed to say black. We always hear black and brown people. Yeah, black and brown people, but black people are going through it. And when we have black issues that are affecting us, we shouldn't be ashamed to advocate for black people. We shouldn't be ashamed to advocate for everybody, but it seems like we can't, our issues have to be rolled up in someone else's issues. If you advocate for black people, you're advocating for everybody because we're the ones who's catching all the hell here. And so uh, until this year, George Floyd, you know, we knew the stories that we heard about police encounters that go wrong are, are not new stories. Uh, they're not new. Uh, the George Floyds of the world, where we had Tyrone West in Baltimore, we had Anthony Anderson in Baltimore, we had a, a list of others, Prince George's in Montgomery County, Baltimore County, all around, um, that have been here for years. But we have legislators who tend to be more like, um, more like, um, how would I say? They're more like, thermostats than thermometers. They, 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 they want to know, they want to, um, they want to know what's going on. And if I said that backwards, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. They don't move until, you know, it's gotten enough attention. But we need courageous legislators who see something wrong and are willing to put themselves out there, expend whatever political capital is necessary to fight for their constituency. And I just don't see that. I didn't see that before, but I do see things happening a little differently with this group that we have 
in the state uh, legislature now. They're a little more conscious of some of the pain and suffering of African Americans, and they're trying to do something. But they need our support, and that's the other part of it. We just can't say, legislators, you do it. Because there's been plenty of times that I've been, Annap been to Annapolis, uh, and I know your podcast is not limited to Maryland. I know it's worldwide, but I'm just using Maryland as an example. I've been to Annapolis to testify f for certain bills dealing with police reform. In fact, I was just up there, um, not up there, but it, we do Zoom now, but I was testifying on a few bills a few weeks ago. An individual can go to Annapolis. You don't have to be a lobbyist. You don't have to be a legislator. You can be John Q. Citizen, just a taxpayer or voter. You can go to Annapolis and help advocate for some of the bills that you feel strongly about. In fact, you can come up with bills in your mind, go to your legislator, and tell your legislator that you want to see this kind of bill. Because legislators don't, don't write the bills. They have a service in, general, in the General Assembly that help them put what you're saying, however inartful, un, inartful it is, or unartful, whatever the word is, however it is, <laughs> Uh, they have a service that will make that bill into a concise piece of legislation that everyone can understand. This is not a spectator sport. Your governance is no longer a spectator sport. It's never been. But you need to be more actively involved and do, get more involved than you do complaining about things. And I mean on every level. You have a right to go to your legislator and tell them what you want. You have a right to to put together coalitions and develop bills that you want to present to your legislators so that they can put these bills in action and get, and get them to get a vote on them and perhaps get some laws passed. You just have to be involved. Uh, we're, we're listening. <laughs> Long-winded lawyer. <laughs> we're listening to the warrior attorney, uh, Jay Wendell Gordon. Mm -hmm. uh, let me uh, ask you this. In the 1980s, Police claim that racial profiling helped them to arrest more drug dealers after 911. And then the police began to focus on the Arab immigrants, immigrants as terrorists. And in the mid 2000s, it seemed to be uh, more Latinos based on illegal uh, immigration. So over the years, there have been various studies that show racial profiling is an ineffective tool to solving. Uh, crimes. So I guess uh, you, you mentioned a lot about uh, legislative reform, but should Congress uh, step in and do something to stop uh, uh, racial profiling? Same deal. Same deal. Uh, they are our legislators. They work for us. We shouldn't be afraid to pick up the phone and call them as if we know them. We vote for them. They ask us for our money. Uh, they come around and act like they want to worship with us and want to be a part of our communities, these people work for you. So you don't have to be afraid or shrink yourself or, or feel as though uh, you're disempowered to actually speak face-to-face -face with somebody that you put in office. You call them. You sit down with them and you tell them what you want. You call them on the phone, you write them. And I like, I like things to be memorialized. So I, I like writing. As a lawyer, that's, that's what we do. We, we want to have a record uh, that there's been some communique uh, with our legislative officials when there are issues that affect us. Yes, Congress would be, yeah, that would be an excellent starting point if we would get, actually, the state, the local, every, every level of government when it comes to the legislative process is an excellent point to uh, start to address these issues. Yeah, and then your comments, of course, uh, 
are important and they should be considered by uh, all uh, uh, states and uh, people listening uh, throughout the country. Correct. Let me, across the board. Yeah, sure, across the board. Let me uh, ask you something about the uh, police community relations. Uh, as you know, uh, there's always the hope that uh, there can be a great uh, relationship of trust and confidence between citizens and uh, community. And you have any uh, thoughts about whether or racial profiling uh, hurts that or whether that can be uh, restored or repaired in any respect? Racial profiling obliterates it. <laughs> okay, it obliterates it. Um, what I would like to see in terms of police reform, uh, some of the things that can help relationships is more police, um, uh, community policing. And we hear that all the time and it sounds, it's almost banal and trite at this point in time, but it's still an effective way to integrate law enforcement in the community in positive ways. You don't want law enforcement to be perceived as overseers. You want them to be, be perceived as part of the community. If law enforcement officers lived in the community, stay policed, I believe we, we would receive better policing. Um, if law enforcement officers' children went to the same schools as ours, if they, if they, uh, if they worked in the same neighborhoods, then they would be vested. They would have a stake in our communities. A lot of times, law enforcement officers live in other jurisdictions and they come to our communities to police, and then they go back to their own jurisdiction. Not only uh, sometimes wreaking havoc upon our communities, but taking our tax dollars uh, to other communities uh, across the state where they're not doing us any good. So I think law enforcement needs to be vested in our community. There should be some resident residency incentives. There may be some constitutional issues with, re, with requiring law enforcement officers to live in, our, in, our, in the jurisdictions where they police, but I think they should be highly incentivized uh, to, to um, live in the jurisdictions where they police, and I think that would go a long, long way. Let me ask you one uh, further question, uh, Attorney Gordon, and uh, again to our listeners, uh, we always has, have a, as a goal a perspective on justice to create change in the area of, of justice. Uh, you call it reform. Uh, I ask all of my guests to share us, uh, with us one uh, small step that citizens can do to take us in a different direction. Do you have uh, a suggestion for our citizens as we wrap up? In terms of combating racial profiling? Yeah, racial profiling. What can they do? Right. What should they do? All right. So every citizen, this is what I say all the time, every citizen, a lot of us have these iPhones, these phones that we carry with us. And these phones are tremendous devices that not only uh, are useful for our entertainment and our scheduling, but also for our protection when it comes to police interactions. Um, These phones not only have video recording devices, but they also are audio recorders. And so when you find yourself in a situation with, with police, uh, with an encounter, you want to be familiar with the use of the audio recording device as well as the video recording aspect of it. Now, you may feel uncomfortable pulling out your cell phone and just directing it in a police officer's face, but if you're 
familiar with the audio recording device, you can hit audio record. You can put it in your in your jacket pocket. You can put it in your center console. And I say do that. If you're in a car, do that immediately when you see the blue lights come on. You you put on the audio recording. You just let it sit and just let it let it record. You have the right to record the police and the performance of their public duties. Do that. Exercise that. And um, and 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 when you do that, not only are you keeping a record because you can't solely rely upon the officer's body-worn camera. They, they can turn them off and turn them on as they please, turn them on when they please, and turn them off uh, whenever they please. It's usually when the police officer is doing wrong that you find that their body-worn cameras have malfunctioned. But if you have your own recording of the incident, uh, then you have a good piece of evidence you can take to your attorney, and your attorney can use it for, uh, for whatever reason, if, if uh, substantively or for purposes of um, impeachment. Um, you just have a solid piece of evidence. Officers have all kinds of technology in their cars. You have it on your hip. I think you should use it. All right. Uh, thank you so much. That's a great piece of advice. Uh, use a smartphone. There you go. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Attorney Gordon. And we now know why they call you the warrior lawyer <laughs> out of Baltimore and Prince George's County. We just heard from Dean Renee Hutchins, the distinguished dean, and the highly regarded attorney, Wendell Gordon. Racial profiling occurs in many aspects of everyday life driving, walking, shopping, relaxing, traveling, eating, drinking coffee, you name it. Racial profiling leads to seizures, unnecessary contacts, arrests, use of force that's excessive, and even loss of life. Racial profiling has a disparate impact on people of color. If we want to begin reforming criminal justice, all of us can start there by discussing it, addressing it, and correcting racial profiling. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.